0: why the board matters is diversity of opinion matters and diversity of perspective and uh, it's very rare to find someone who knows absolutely everything and so learning from little slices of everyone is a very uh, good technique in terms of balancing out your perspective and i think also when you are making big decisions around careers it's worthwhile to um, test your hypothesis across a couple of different individuals. So like early on, we would hear from mentees, oh, I want to be a banker. And you'd be like, well, why do you want to be a banker? And you'd be like, oh, I saw this movie about a banker. And you'd be like, okay, why don't you go talk with like three bankers from different size banks in all different business units and then see if you actually want to be a banker, like you like their life.
1: Helping CEOs and business leaders discover the energy to perform exceptional brilliance and positively impact the lives of those around them be inspired by world leaders and next-level gurus. This is the Active CEO Podcast, where the ordinary don't belong. And now your hosts, Craig Johns and Ben Gathercole.
2: On this episode of the Active CEO Podcast, we speak with a young, creative, and powerful leader who was named in the Forbes 30 Under 30 social impact entrepreneur, and the top 25 military influences in 2018. Living in New York, her education included a BA of International Political Economy and International Business Diplomacy at Georgetown University. She began her career as a journalist for the American Chamber of Commerce before taking on roles as CEO of Bunshop, Director of Creative Social Strategy for Blue Blocker China, and was a founding partner of League X, an independent storytelling and narrative design agency. In 2015, she co-founded Veterati, which is the number one mentoring platform for the military and is now the CEO. Our guest was the VP of Growth and Innovation at Double Dutch, which powers business and social movements through its award-winning live events platform before it was acquired in June 2019. I'm pleased to introduce to you a game changer for defense veterans, an innovation leader who is dedicated to solving social challenges, and a connector who loves building tribes, Dinah Rao. Dinah, welcome to the show.
0: Thank you so much. It's my honor to be here.
2: You've wanted to change the world since you were 13 years old. I'm curious, what kept you occupied as a child, and then what was the shift at thirteen when you really realized you were going to be a change agent?
0: Yeah, so um I was a pretty high energy child. I think what kept me occupied as a child was books. I mean, I read so many books. I was born in suburban Ohio, so uh, really, not too much to do out there. You know, I spent a lot of time in the library. I'd go to the library, check out a stack of books, and usually the librarian would look at me and say, you're not going to be able to read all that by the time it's due, and I'd be like, watch me. I'm going to come back in <laughs> two days or more. Um, I loved fiction. I got into nonfiction. Historical fiction is what I really loved, and historical fiction is sort of like a, what got me into thinking about change, I think, before I had this sort of transformational moment. And what happened there is I just like I was reading historical fiction and then I started reading autobiographies and then I started reading like every single autobiography I could find on in terms of um, the world wars, right, and the Holocaust. And then once I got into reading every single biography and memoir and story, um, I don't know. I, I think what I just saw was this constant theme that adults would say, uh, "We're never going to let this happen again." And so I think. That's when my moment came later, which, you know, I should probably give you a chance to actually ask about (laughs) before I go into my monologue story of what happened after that. But that's a little bit of, you know, what childhood looked like for me. I just read a lot. and I had two younger siblings and, you know, we all did that outdoor um, Ohio thing and music was a huge part of my life. But I think the defining thing for me was just reading. Like I loved reading.
2: So Georgetown University was your education institution of choice. What was the purpose behind studying international political economy?
0: Oh, such a great question. Well, so, um, so Georgetown, so I chose Georgetown because, uh, I wanted to go to politics. I thought politics was going to be my vehicle for change. And the reason that I decided politics was going to be my vehicle for change was because, um, Early on, like when I, when I was younger, when I learned about the Darfur genocide, I sort of just was just like, this is a, this is the worst thing I've ever seen in my life. And I cried for a whole night after reading um, a magazine article about it. And this was after I'd read all these books about the Holocaust, right? So um, that night, when I was thinking about what to do, I felt so helpless, first of all, just being sort of in, in the middle of America and not able to do anything about these international problems. Um, but by morning time, I decided on two things. And one was that... Um, I was going to go to politics because a lot of these issues are systemic and it's not like Starfur and the genocide happened overnight. It was, you know, hundreds of years of politics and power. And the other part of it is I decided that something still had to be, uh, be done immediately now because people were actually already dying. They're already in a state of distress. So you can't necessarily like wait until later for a longer term systemic solution. And so I ended up, um, finding out that Berkeley had a a pretty incredible project called uh, the Berkeley Stoves Project, um, where they were funding stoves for Sudanese refugees. And this was a big issue because a lot of the women from the camps would go out further and farther and they were cutting down all the trees. And it was like the more, and there were a lot of cases of the Janjaweed coming in and kidnapping or raping women that were trying to gather firewood just to cook. And then the the cooking fire was also environmentally hazardous and it wasn't great for their health because it was open flame. Anyway, they came up with a stove at Berkeley that you could construct locally, and um, thought I thought it was pretty cool. Got in touch with them and said, "Look, uh, I have all these students, you know, classmates. We all want to help out, so we ended up rallying like 75 students, running around neighborhoods, doing fundraisers, getting local businesses involved, doing like a giant Thanksgiving dinner bash where I think it was like 100 plus families came in, commandeered the school cafeteria, all the stuff, got like live music, restaurants, everyone involved, and I think." Yeah, and so I think that was like the one half of it. The other half that you were actually asking me about was Georgetown and international political economy. So on the IPEC side, what got me into that is um, I've been interested in politics and business, and I couldn't really just do like pure international politics. And I also didn't want to do pure economics. It had to be somewhere in between. So that's how uh, the IPEC um, choice came from.
2: Yeah, wow. So following graduation, you went straight into the world of entrepreneurship what did Georgetown University provide you that gave you the confidence to build companies which solve social challenges?
0: I would say there was one professor in particular, and his name is Professor Mark Bush, and he had a class. It was, I think it was like International Business Diplomacy, and it was known for being the most challenging class in all of the school foreign service, as in, you know, one out of four people dropped out or two out of four people, it was very challenging, extremely challenging. He didn't hand out good grades and most people dropped out and he scared people. Like he just had a personality that was just giant and he was very scary. Um, mm-hmm. And I found that to be a great challenge. And so I loved that class. It was incredibly hands-on. He just gave us real-life projects. He'd be like, all right, take take this product to market and uh, you're going to have all these government regulation challenges so go call up the company and figure it out what you do. And um, and I love that, like, I, I'm not actually a big fan of higher education, to be honest, but Mark Bush's class was the one, I won't say the one redeeming thing, but my absolute, one of my favorite, favorite experiences from Georgetown that I brought into real life.
2: So obviously he had a, quite a big influence on how you went into real life. Were there any other key people that were supporting the start of your entrepreneurial journey?
0: I have a lot of mentors. Oh, boy. Well, you mentioned the American Chamber of Commerce. Um, yeah, I mean, there, there's there was just so there were a lot of things. Well, so the funny story with the American Chamber of Commerce, and this is again, unfiltered is, um, I think people just like my entrepreneurial spirit was sparked by people saying yes, to me, when it was very unexpected. It's like very, like, I don't know how I convinced them when I look back on it, sometimes I'm just like, Wow, I don't know how why these people said yes. Um, one example would be the American Chamber of Commerce. What happened was I had developed an affinity for bourbon when I was in college and I was like, oh, I really love bourbon, it's really delicious. Um, but as a poor college student, I didn't have a budget to satisfy all my scotch needs. And so uh, so I came up with a plan and my plan was to write about scotch and bourbons, And especially because I was going to be going abroad to Taiwan, which is like single malt central, right? And then it had Kaplan and all these awesome Taiwanese brands, I thought, well, maybe I can get someone to sponsor me to start writing about scotch. And the American Chamber of Commerce had a food and wine beverages section. And they also had a lot of features on like scotch and lifestyle and internationally. Um, And so I convinced them to let me do it. And it was great. So like could expense on my scotch excursions. Uh, But the caveat is that I was underage then. And so I had to hand them a fake ID and then like pull this entire thing off. And the funny part is we did I don't even think they know it now. So hopefully they won't listen to this. <laughs> so, uh, and nobody's gonna get in trouble. Um, but uh, but yeah, that's that, it's funny. So it's, it's things like that where people just like said yes. Um, specific people, a lot. Like really, really a lot of folks. Um, I spent probably half my time off campus, half my time on campus. Again, like I said, like I'm not very good at, um, I got very tired of the traditional education system early on just because in high school, I was in a very uh, traditional, let's say, um, my family was, you know, they're Asian, so it, it, there was a high expectation for, for the eldest daughter, and so it was the academic performance was everything, and we were one of the top public schools in Ohio, and, um, and I was valedictorian, and I gave up every ounce of my life to do that. It was like every 10 minutes was pre-programmed. So a lot of, I know we're going to talk about habits at some point, but like, a lot of those habits were ingrained early on where if you look at my early day planners from middle school and high school, it's like every five, 10 minute block is color coded around like, this is for this particular assignment. Then there's a two hour block for violin. And then you go to another, it's like every single minute is blocked. And I was used to being like that. And frankly, like after I got, um, I, after I did the valedictorian speech in my high school, super competitive and. I just decided that uh, I already proven to myself that I could beat the academic system. So I had no interest in doing it again, because it was too high a cost, a social cost and sort of an emotional cost. You, you lose a lot when you focus like myopically on the one thing. Um, so yeah, so I spent a lot of my time off campus in Georgetown and in the process met a lot of interesting like business folks. And uh, one of my mentors was David Wiseman, really, really good friend who's still men- like we're still talking constantly, kind of like Carl as well. Uh, but I met Carl later on when I was in Shanghai. And so he was another one of my mentors. He came out of Georgetown as well. Um, but it's, yeah, it's it's always been a, it's been an interesting life. And I think like I have been very lucky to have lots of people like believe in me early. Um, I think about how confidence develops a lot because I kind of like study young people and different trajectories. And I wonder about that stuff a lot. And I think my lucky break was just how how many people have said yes and believed in me super early. Actually, I can't, I can't barely tell you a no. Like I can't tell, I can't remember. Maybe it's because I blackout stories about no's because I'm like super optimistic, but I genuinely can't really name like the number in my, from 16 to 21, let's say people who actually said no to me. And so I, I, maybe it's convincing. Maybe it's like, maybe it's just because I got a really lucky break and I met some really great people early on who kind of nurtured that fire, you know?
2: Well, we make our own luck. So, moments can change our life in an absolute instance. What is the backstory to co-founding Viterati?
0: Viterati. okay, Viterati is very special. So, what happened with Viterati is I was in Shanghai and I was running my branding agency, I'm sort of starting to feel this, like, sense of distance from purpose. That's a whole different story, by the way, how that happened. Um, but in terms of this story, so I'm in Shanghai and I'm checking LinkedIn and I get a LinkedIn message from a Marine who's in Afghanistan and he has reached out and his message is like, really interested in the startups you've created. Uh, I'd love to launch my own thing at some point. Um, would love a conversation with you. Except he said it much more eloquently. So he said it in such a way, like such a compelling, compelling way. I was reading the copy like uh, maybe like a couple months, maybe a year ago, and I was like, this is the craziest message that you sent me. Like, no wonder I said yes. <laughs> um, and so... I got on a call with him and oh, one of my other reasons for getting on a call is because like, I really believe in LinkedIn karma. So I've met tons of founders, investors, co-founders, friends, business partners, like life friends on LinkedIn. And so I said, okay, of course. So we get on the call and I'm just like curious about why, because I don't know that many folks in the military. So I was like, Daniel, why did you join the Marine? What's your story? Like, why are you in Afghanistan now? All these questions. And so uh, that was the beginning of our friendship and, Basically, like we just talked for the next eight months, and that that's like how Veterati got started.
2: Yeah, wow. So there's a massive why behind Veterati. Can you inform our listeners what it's all about and who it's really for?
0: Yeah. So, Veterati is an on demand digital mentoring platform for veterans and military spouses to be able to secure their dream jobs. And the reason why we built a mentoring platform is because. Actually, so I remember this. I remember when Daniel and I, the, the Marine who reached out to me on LinkedIn, were talking about this. We started with the problem. It was a problem of why aren't veterans getting their dream jobs when they come back from service? It's like, wow, like you take a couple, like five to ten years of your life dedicated to the country, come back, and somehow people decided that's a handicap because it's like, oh, you don't have any corporate experience. What are you off doing, like actually fighting our wars? So we just thought it was a, it was really unjust. And the other thing that we saw that was a pain point was just this um, – the sense of isolation in the process, like the what happens when you have such a strong tribe come home and then no one like cares anymore about what happens is you're super isolated and then you know, you're know you going into interviews and like begging for interviews and then people are just like, oh yeah, you don't qualify. It's like the, the most jarring experience. And so, so Daniel and I, after our first conversation on Skype back in August of, I think it was 2014, Um, we started talking about transition and he was like, you know, if you're interested in transition, I have a bunch of friends who are Marines who are leaving the military right now and you can ask them and talk to them and help them find jobs. And I was like, okay, sounds like a plan. And the most I knew about the job market was nothing at that point because I have been founding companies like since I was 18, right? So, uh, all I knew was that opportunities had always come to me through my network and the people that I had invested into so that's the only thing that I knew, and I also had a pretty wide network already at the time because of just how you know what you learn as an entrepreneur. And um, and so what ended up happening is Daniel introduced me to all these Marines, and so we ended up having conversations on Skype and phone calls, all from like around the world. And what I started learning is like I remember asking one of our first uh, first guys, and and basically I was like, hey, look. Um, what's your 10-year plan? Like, what do you want to do? What's your vision? And he said something like, "Well, no one's ever asked me that before." And I was like, "Oh, okay, let's work on that." And uh, and in the process of working with this first like group of just six friends of Daniel's, um, we kind of learned pretty fast that the job market didn't work because um, these guys are like they were super bright, top of class, um, and they were. They were just applying to jobs and not getting any replies and so we started looking into the stats and found out that 80 percent of jobs come through personal networks according to the department of labor and that didn't surprise me because i you know we know the power of networks and so we thought well how do we help veterans build networks as fast as possible that was the next question and we also knew that um, conversations were more helpful than applications uh, because in the course of a conversation, it's actually a conversation you're learning. It's not just uh, this, app, this one-way experience. And so we thought, well, what if we created a platform that connected every single transitioning veteran, which was at the time like 250,000 veterans transitioning every year out of the military, um, to, you know, like all the Americans who are employed across the country in different roles, in different companies that can just donate one hour of their time to share their experience being an entrepreneur or share their experience inside Amazon or whatever it happens to be and be like a human face to the role and an active coach. And we also knew that there was such a strong sentiment in the U S of people like me. So I think it's like one in three Americans have never had a conversation with a veteran. who on veterans, they don't know what to say. They're like, thank you for your service. And then it's, that's it. Like that's their only, then there's this, there's this uh, military civilian divide and this feeling of, I wish I could do more, but I have no idea how to. So tapping into the, I wish I could do more of like America. And then also tapping into, um, this like giant need for mentoring conversations and network connectivity uh that's that's why we ended up building this on-demand digital mentoring platform um called veterati
2: brilliant brilliant so you know talking about that transition you know it's something a lot of athletes face as well right you you have an identity once the identity's gone no one really cares about what you did in the past and that's that's the big challenge so it's trying to find that and then it's like you come out of a tribe where everyone's super connected you're to a certain degree, everything's kind of planned and you know where the direction's going to a place where it's so um, deconstructed. It is um, just a, a place where you don't really know where you're at and it's extremely challenging. So it's it's not just the veterans who are facing those challenges. You know, Their partners and families also face adversity um, along the veterans journey, both in the military and as they transition. So how does Viterati support the partners and families during this time as well?
0: Yeah, so we actually, Viterati is not just a lot of veterans serving organizations, they don't
2: like exclusively
0: serve veterans. Um, With Viterati, we're open to veterans and military spouses as well. So all military spouses. Um, We actually have a bunch of really, really cool projects right now with organizations that specifically focus on military spouses. One that is just going live. So we partner with the USO and they have, and actually we're building on an exclusive military spouse mentoring platform where military spouses are mentoring military spouses. So in a couple different ways, like right now, any military spouse can go to better sign up and find mentors. And what you'll find in our community is we also have mentors. When a mentor signs up, they can get a special badge. And one of the badges is military spouse. So military spouses can go military spouses through our platform. Um, but the other side of it is also this completely closed network for only military spouses, which we're experimenting with, with partners like the USO, partners like um, Paradigm, Paradigm Shift and a couple others where uh, there are great organizations out there that, you know, specialize in community building for military spouses. And we think it's super, super, super important.
2: Yeah. So, so you talked about the digital platform. You know, how did you come up with that idea and, and the structure of Viterati? Because it is a little bit different too the most common ways of say, mentoring with veterans?
0: Yeah, so we, lo- we took a look at the veteran service organization space. So in the United States, there are about like 42,000 veteran service organizations. Wow. So we didn't want to go out and like build something that was already there. Um, and so we looked around and we found that most of the mentoring organizations were doing manual matching, kind of like pen and paper style, style spreadsheets, uh, very, very manual. Uh, and they also had like long line waiting periods. You'd be like sign up for a mentor, and then six months later you'd get assigned a mentor, and then you'd have to do one year with that mentor. So we just thought this is like really silly in the age of Uber and Airbnb and on demand. Like you've got to be able to have on demand mentors. Also, what we had learned with working our vets with with the um, early cohorts of Marines is that um, they were dynamically evolving so freaking fast. And so who you thought would be the perfect mentor when you first met them three months later, it's actually a whole different kind of persona. They, they, they might've explored a couple of different things, realized they didn't want corporate America and wanted to start their own business. So we just were like, there's no way uh, like a manual system can keep up with that kind of evolution and human growth. And so we were like, okay, it has to be demand generated. Like you need to let mentees choose their path. And that was, I think that's a big innovation, like big insight for us is um, you have to put power in the hands of the people. That's it. Like put it, put it in the hands of people and let them choose. And so we created this completely automated, like hands off on demand mentoring platform. And what that means is any veteran or military spouse can sign in within five minutes, specify like types of mentors they're looking for, skill sets, industries of interest, where they are in their job search. And then once they finish their profile, they get they land into a search page of every single mentor on our platform. So they can actually book anyone like tens of thousands of mentors, they can choose anyone they want. Um, And they can search for them with keywords. They can filter for them. And they're also algorithmically matched. But, we, you know, our algorithmic match is recommendation. It's not a hard set like you must see with these five people. Um, And so and then we just let people choose. They let they get, you know, they get the freedom to browse through profiles and and get inspired and see things. You know, I, I think the big thing that we were thinking about is that you just don't know what you don't know when it comes down to career search. So you have to create the ability to discover things you might not know. And also the other part of it is the on-demand nature of the platform. So well, the other thing that we learned from even working with our original, you know, our original MARSOC guys, the special operator Marines, is that they had a lot of pride and they didn't use any resources. They didn't like using any of the resources. Daniel was the same way, by the way. So Daniel, my co-founder, is a Marine. And he was like, yeah, I didn't use any of the veteran service organizations when I came out because I thought, I, you know, like, it's, it's just uh, you – Um, you don't want to look vulnerable or helpless and it's hard to ask for help. I think the big thing is it's hard to ask for help for really anyone. And so we had to figure out a way to make it feel like you weren't asking for help when you're reaching out to a mentor. So instead of doing what LinkedIn does, when you have to send a connection request and then send a message where the onus is on the person who is reaching out, we wanted the mentee to feel like, Oh, here's just a bunch of library books I can check out. Like how do we make this as, frictionless as possible. And so when mentors sign up, we require them to integrate their calendars and, and choose the number of hours are available. So they're already out there. Like, here's my availability. Now you can check them out. And that's very different from trying to request someone for a conversation. We had to remove everything that felt like potentially begging out of it. And so that's how we did it. And then we also decided that um, to make it even more frictionless it had to be like uh, the Amazon one-click-buy button. So we wanted our booking a mentor button to feel like that. So literally, if you want to book a mentor, you just click that one button and you're ready to go. Like, you're like, I chose my time, bam. you And then the mentor gets a text message and they confirm via text message because we, like, our mentors are um, very busy folks. Like, we've got, like, a CIO of Microsoft on our platform. like, a lot of CC execs. And, uh, and we just thought, let's use SMS and shortcut everything. So... Mentor gets a text message, they confirm via link, synced up, ready to go, add stuff to your calendar, and then BetterAudi will remind you via text message like 24 hours before your call, call's coming up, here's some protocols, and then there's like a cancellation pathway to can take if you need to reschedule. Um, and then at the actual time of the call, like the Audio system will call the mentee, they press one to confirm they're on the line, then it calls the mentor, and then they we put them together. And so we have all this awesome data on like people, whether they've missed calls or how long their phone calls are. And then at the end of the call, the moment it ends, we send a text message that's automated to the mentor and the mentee that has a review survey link. And so because it comes like immediately after the call ends, I think it's like three out of four of our users will submit their stories and their reviews. And the review is social too. So what we're asking for is, what do you think about your mentor? How, how, what, what kind of impact did they make on your life? And so people are like very excited about sharing their story because it gets posted on your mentor's profile. And the mentors also write about their mentees. Which we use as social proof for employers as well. If you know if a mentee wants to share, and also we think it builds confidence when you know the CIO of Microsoft tells you that you're awesome. And then, um, <laughs> and then we have a couple different other metrics that are involved in our reviews, but it's very quick, and we're just sort of like gauging for behavioral transformation. Um, yeah, and so that's how the system works. And then we check in on a monthly basis via text message to see if people have secured jobs. So that's how we know. Like we're almost at I think a thousand jobs now secured. Um, and folks are, you know, it's just like, it's like completely automated system, but we just wanted to make the mentoring process frictionless, um, not embarrassed, like not embarrassing at all, very empowering and then self-driven so that you could, you know, really feel like there wasn't some, I don't know, some central power that was determining your future. It was just you choosing your destiny, you know?
2: Very clever. And I love the, everything's by design and you're reducing the barriers to entry and obviously continuing in the program as well. So I really like that aspect. Now it has been suggested that we are the average Mm -hmm. of the five people closest to us. So how does the board of mentors approach work and why is it so critical during the transition period?
0: Oh, wow. So, you know, it's interesting, our mentors, I've had mentors and mentees do podcasts. I'll have to send you the links where they've explained about their boards and it's been really fascinating hearing our users talk about this. Um, so what we started finding is that on average, Venerati mentees have, I think it's like 3.7 mentors. And we, some of the most successful mentees we've seen have had, you know, a dozen mentors. I think one extreme case was William Lou, who um, I love his story so much because he came to us years ago as a mentee. And I remember him because I was one of his mentor calls and he was, very introverted so our conversation was like he was like how do I how do I network like how do I have these conversations he was very very introverted and then um Daniel and I met him in person we were in San Francisco at this networking event and I remember Daniel's also an introvert so he he and William were t- you know he was, he was talking and Will was like oh it's so hard to go up to people and he's like shy and then like 25 mentor conversations later this guy is now like a social media king. like he is <laughs> everywhere he's super social, he's everywhere, he's at a, like he's thriving in his career. He's a mentor on Veterati. I think he's gotten like he actually just did hundred his one hundredth mentoring call with Veterati mentees. And wow. it's like the wildest transformation. So anyway, I think like our users can probably give a lot of good stories about like how they built their build their boards. But I think part of it has to do with um why the board matters is diversity of opinion matters and diversity of perspective. And uh, it's very rare to find someone who knows absolutely everything. And so learning from little slices of everyone is a very uh, good technique in terms of balancing out your perspective. And I think also when you are making big decisions around careers, it's worthwhile to um, test your hypotheses across a couple of different individuals. So like early on, we would hear from mentees, oh, I wanna be a banker. And you'd be like, well, why do you wanna be a banker? And you like, oh, I saw this movie about a banker. And you'd be like, okay, why don't you go talk with like three bankers from different size banks in all different business units, and then see if you actually wanna be a banker, like if you like their life. And the same thing with like, I'm gonna go get a law degree. And it's like, okay, well, why don't you talk to like five lawyers before? And so organically, you'll start seeing like swords emerging because you're diversifying. It's not, it's, it's probably not the best thing to like just choose one lawyer and then decide like that's the case for the entire legal system. But um, but having like a, a breadth of data points to base your decision making on is really important. And I think, the the sort of like the secret behind veterati has always been it's not just about the knowledge it's not about like transfer of wisdom that's one component of it the other part is uh mentoring is an amazing way to build meaningful relationships and in in sort of an era of like generally transactional networking um where people are always like this is so awkward like what do i do at a networking event and i think that like that's what we were trying not to do is some form of transactional networking so a lot of our mentoring like if you look in our review system we evaluate the the effectiveness of a conversation based off one of our metrics is emotional support like are you uh as a mentor emotionally creating space for your mentee because that's just as important it's not just about like you being super smart and giving them lots of advice it's like creating that emotional bond which works both ways It, it makes a mentor more likely to take care of their mentee it makes a mentee feel like they're they belong to something greater Um, And it's not just like I'm getting great advice, but actually uh, this person cares about me, you know?
2: So success is not always about the answers that you provide, but the questions that you actually ask. What is the most important question to you that you really like to ask that stimulates curiosity when you're mentoring these mentees?
0: Oh, such a good question. Um, There are quite a lot i mean i like i actually really like asking about legacy and driving purpose because a lot of the time if you ask tactical questions like oh what what's the role you're looking for what kind of a company are you looking for it becomes sort of a superficial level conversation but mine is sort of more around uh what really motivates you and what sort of like what sort of environment makes you just thrive and makes you really joyful what kind of people do you like working around um, because I think for me, what I'm trying to calibrate for in a mentoring conversation, especially with Veterati, is uh, what size of company are we looking at? What kind of a culture are we looking at matching to? Um, what sorts of industries are compatible that we haven't thought about? Because I, I don't think like it's offering, you know, it's really like the job of a mentor, I think, is to sort of identify what you don't know, the things you don't know you don't know. And so these questions that get at deeper motivations help, at least they really help me to understand um, what's what's beneath the surface that maybe is is in the subconscious of a mentee's mind, but they haven't thought about yet. And so things like that matter a lot. And yeah, good question though.
2: So how would your parents describe your leadership style?
0: Mm, Very proactive, enthusiastic, optimistic probably
2: very good how does daniel and your leadership skills combine and support each other through strengths through each other's strengths
0: yeah so oh wow we are super complimentary um and so it was pretty nerve-wracking so with daniel and i it's a pretty crazy story right because we met on linkedin and then we we decided that to start this little experiment veterati and then we sort of like fell in love along the way and then we had to figure out like were we really in love and then um so when we met for the first time after eight months of talking about Veterati, like sparks flew, and it was just like, after two weeks together, we just had this conversation where we just said, "Look, what if?" And this is pretty crazy, but what if we just did all the things at once? So what if we just, you know, started a relationship, um, transitioned out of our careers, uh, started a company, moved in together, moved back to the US? Let's just like, and our our philosophy was, if it doesn't work, it'll break really fast, which is probably better than a slow death. So. Um, So we figured we'd just throw our everything into the crucible and somehow it worked. And it wasn't like, at the beginning there were definitely some challenges because we were just learning each other's style and also mixing like a romantic relationship with a business one is not the easiest thing. Like it takes a lot of communication. Um, But yeah. Okay. So our styles, the way they're different. Daniel is, so Daniel's superpower are, so Daniel's superpowers are also the things like I love most about him. So Daniel is extremely brave. He's just, brave and he's courageous and he um he is so especially especially like you i I mean startup world can be really shitty sometimes i think and so uh i have seen him in situations where i've seen other people tower i've seen other people turn into idiots or assholes and daniel has like held his ground every single time It is amazing because you don't get to see people in that situation very often where it's a bad, bad, low situation and then someone shines and he's consistently that way. Um, So there's the bravery element, which is so true about him. And I think it's really valuable in founders uh, to be able to hold to their value systems. And I think a lot of people say this, like you're like, oh, I have strong values. But honestly, when you put them to the test, most people bend. I have been stunned by this over and over again. By uh, incredible communicators and marketers who talk about, oh, this is what I believe. But when shit hits the fan, they like run. And Daniel's superpower is something that I know is rare because I've seen a lot of people run the other direction when things get hard and he doesn't. Um, and so I think that as a leader is something that I admire in him a lot. The other part is he just has, uh, he just won't let go of something once he's committed. Like he's super committed. And that really balances me out because I am like a spark. like I'm sort of like a spark all the time. I have, I'm have, i very high energy. Um, I'm more like the, I'm sort of like the external facing, like the the, the, the storyteller persona, right? <laughs> Super high energy, evangelist, all that kind of stuff. But my focus isn't like his, like his focus is like, he's like a train that runs on time. And then I'm sort of like, um, I don't know, some other thing. So uh, sporadic fireworks. So we're very complimentary in a lot of ways. Um, yeah, and actually about a year and a half ago, so you had mentioned I joined a company called Double Dash and I was uh, VP of Growth and Innovation there. We actually had this conversation when we were talking about it and I was like, hmm, you've been CEO for a while. How would you feel about being CEO of this, of Veterati? And we had this conversation and part of it was, you know, <laughs> part of it was that we were kind of thinking about like what would happen if we... Like, what would our relationship look like if we weren't co-founders? Like, our romantic relationship. We're like, oh, what would happen here if this is, this, this, this dynamic changed? And we were interested in exploring it a bit. And um, and he was like, you know what? I really like that. So, actually, when I took on a role with Double Dutch for a bit of time, um, Daniel took over as CEO. And he killed it. And it was actually very important because it created a vacuum of space where he could lead without me being like overbearing all the time, which, you know, I, I think I can sort of be like a bit of a large personality. But the moment I sort of stepped out of the picture for a little bit of time while I was working on Double Dutch, um, it really like blew me away the stuff he got done. Like he was just crazy to me. Some of our largest partnerships, our biggest corporate deals. And it was just Daniel. And it was like watching him do this was very it, it made me realize I was like, gosh, I should have stepped away a long time ago. Like <laughs> that really that, <laughs> I should step away all the time. Like maybe if I just disappear for a while, that'd be great. But um uh, but it's pretty amazing. Like he's he's uh he's an executor, he's reliable and um I think like maybe I'm more like the charisma side, but he's definitely like he's the he's the guy who makes things happen and you can rely on like that he'll do it forever. <laughs> you know, until it's
2: done. So we're talking about, you know, mentors and how you mentor other people. How did you select your tribe of mentors?
0: Oh, very, very carefully. Okay. So, um, so I had a thing back in the day when I was, you know, I think probably my early twenties, I was like looking for the perfect mentor. And then I gave up on that because I just couldn't find the perfect mentor. So, um, because I, I wanted someone who was, um, who would be a life mentor, like a life mentor across professional, someone who I believe their personal values were as consistent as professional values that I saw across everything, philosophically, spiritually, all of it. And then I thought, thought well, this is just too complex. Like I'm not, I'm not really seeing anyone who's doing it all. So I'm just gonna like do my cabinet of advisors and divvy up all the different things I'm looking for. Um, the biggest change that I've seen though is a lot of my mentoring relationships. So if I look at, people who I consider to be mentors, 10 years ago, we're now sort of like reverse mentor peers. We've we've become peers. And um, oh, and in many fun cases, I'm mentoring my mentor's children, which I love. Which I love. I just had the first, it was a very exciting experience. I just had the first first time ever, uh, one of my mentor's kids told me, he said, Diana, uh, I'm gonna tell you something confidentially, but you can't tell my dad. And I was like, okay, done. Confidentiality in a vault, safe space. And I thought that was such a cool thing. But, uh, <laughs> but, it's, uh, but it's really, I think it's like the, the thing that's been different about my mentoring relationships over the last decade and how they've changed is I used to really, it was very much like, oh, I would come to the table with 500 million questions, always prepared. Um, and I think actually I became a question master like, most of my friends know me as the deep questions person because uh, I value my mentors so much that I would, like, come up with lists of questions ahead of time that were totally customized. Everything, every conversation with one of my mentors was, like, a, a podcast interview, pre-prep, tons of questions, always, like, thinking about this. Um, and in the beginning, I was like, gosh, how am I going to add value back to these people who are helping me? Uh, but now I find, if if I think about my mentors, I actually don't have any one directional mentoring relationships. They're all uh, bi-directional. They're all peer mentors now, which is super interesting. It's like a very different kind of tribe. Um, So I don't know, maybe that's just a thing that changes over time, but it's very much the dynamic has shifted a lot. But I think that's actually maybe how it was meant to be the whole time. Because what I see even with better audience mentor mentee relationships is um, the best of relationships are those where both are learning together. And a lot of our mentors say this, like actually some of the best mentors say this, they say, I would get as much out of my mentees. Like I learn as much out of them. And this happens to me also, like with my nieces and nephews, like I'll get on a call sometimes with my niece and she like mentors me on technology. You know, it's like, it's really, (laughs) but uh, but that dynamic, there's always something to learn from everyone. And I think flipping the script is really important because then it's, it's like, I don't, I'm just not a fan of monologues. Like the dialogue is much more interesting, right?
2: Very good. I'm going to talk to you offline after this around something, an exciting sort of project that I'm working on. And I think you'll like it just listening to that. So Ah, I can see you are very, obviously you're very ambitious. You're very energetic and very determined. So how do you ensure that you free your mind so that you can show up, turn up and perform your best every day?
0: Okay. I have a lot of thoughts about this because, um, about a month ago, I hit like the, the the most optimized growth spurt of my entire life. Like I was actually, I had optimized my entire schedule, all my habits, all my practices and rituals to the point where I was explaining them to a friend. Actually a friend asked me how to optimize your life and then I wrote a six page letter to him and then I shared it with some other friends. And then so my friend said, um, wow, when's the last time you felt like this? Like you've been growing so fast. And I was like, actually this is probably the fastest I've ever grown. Like my growth curve right now is insane. Um, and what had happened was, I was okay, so it all actually started with one thing. It started with this idea. And I don't know how I got this idea. Okay, anyway, so I had this idea for that came up a month and a half, two months ago. And I just thought, you know, it's a lot of pressure to constantly be having goals. So maybe I'll just do one thing, one thing better every day, I'm just gonna be like one thing. And so what happened is I put 15 minutes into my calendar during the nighttime and then I would sit there and every day at night I would reflect on the day and think about like what happened and then decide on one thing that would be better the next day and then I'd write it down and execute on it and it could be anything like it could be work-related it could be physical health-related it could be family-related whatever that tiny practice has like exploded into so much I can't even tell you um it's crazy like even this morning, I was, so I was, sometimes um, I've been doing this now for like 45 days. So I, I'm starting to like have to get really creative about what the better thing looks like. And you can repeat things, but you know, you don't want to repeat too much. Um, and I always have like, my better thing tomorrow is not to drink again. No, but actually, <laughs> um, uh, so yeah, no, I noticed it in my brain because I was sitting there, I was taking my dog out this morning and, um, and you know, I'm in like the dog park and I'm like, wow there's so much like dog poop around that people didn't pick up. And usually, you know, I wait there and I'm just waiting for my dog to do his business and then I'll pick up his crap. But then I was just thinking, I was like, you know what? My better me today, I'm going to be a better neighbor. <laughs> so, <laughs> I'm for I just like pick up two other people's dog poop, thrown away. And you know what? Like I was just thinking about that. Like there's just so many ways to be better. And it makes you start thinking all the time about what you can do better. Um, and kind of, I think it's like interesting to start with yourself and just be like, what kind of things can I do better? Work out 10 minutes more, do like five more push-ups? whatever. But then when you start running out of things to do with yourself, I actually started realizing you start thinking about like the world a lot, which brings you full circle back to like social impact, right? Then you're just like, well, maybe my better thing tomorrow is to figure out one action I can take for the Amazon rainforest, you know? And then it's just like. Whoa, there's something really big here. So I've had a a, um, a coaching friend of mine was like, You gotta build a tribal framework. But I, I'm gonna experiment on myself for like another sixty days and then figure out what happens and see what happens there. But um that's one part. And then the other part I feel is what came out of the better. So one day one day I was thinking about the better framework and uh and I was trying to think of something to do better and I was reflecting on my day and realized that the vast majority of my day was spent doing logistical tasks. It's all these annoying things that had to be done for business. And I thought, what what a shame that I didn't get a chance to do more deep, thoughtful work today. And I thought, tomorrow I'm going to do better. I'll do two hours of deep work. Deep work for me is like strategic, creative, thoughtful work. And so I programmed it into my calendar, and I wasn't sure if I could focus for two hours and do like pure deep work. And I did, and it was awesome. And so I decided that I was going to program deep work into as many days as possible. So now I actually segmented my checklist into logistical items and deep work items. And I have begun doing this thing with my schedule where it's like locked logistical versus deep. And what that does with my brain is it forces me to like do all my logistical stuff really fast within a certain amount of time. Then I have all my deep work. Then I started adding in all sorts of things. Like I realized that family time, I needed more family time. So I blocked like an hour a Friday that's just texting calling family and I made it recurring and then so whatever what happens with my schedule my schedule is like a thing that is experimented with all the time um and what I do is I test it with a better framework I think that's what happens so, Like you test things to see like oh I'll do this better tomorrow and how does it feel and then if I really like it I'll do it recurring for a couple of weeks and then if it sticks it sticks and then if I miss something like three days in a row then I just stop doing it I realize it's not a sticking habit so that's that's sort
2: of how it works. Brilliant. I really like that. So it's cool. It's so the tiny little habits yeah. and, and you also there talking around working on the business rather than always working in it. Cause a lot of people just get caught into working in the business. And so that it's so important to allocate that time to work on the business. So well done. I really like that. We all know smart people have great answers, but the best people ask great questions. So when was the last time you did something for the first time?
0: When was the last time I did something for the first time? Oh, a lot. I mean, it was this morning in terms of picking up other people's dog poop. I'm not that like, you know, I'm really not that like, uh, that perfect person who does that sort of stuff all the time altruistically. So (laughs) that was the first time I did that. Um, Okay, so actually, that's a really, that question is a little bit uh, of a setup for me. It's like a bit too easy now because of my better everyday practice. Like, I end up doing a lot of things that I haven't done like every day. So, whether it's as silly as um, I like to do this uh, balancing yoga pose on a balancing ball where you like pull your legs straight up to your head but I like doing it on the balancing balance or the floor to make it more challenging. And i had been doing it for like 15 to 30 seconds. And then one of my better days was like, I wonder how long I can hold this if I just hold it infinitely. And so it turns out it was like a minute and a half. And I was like, dang, my body's stronger than I thought it was. Um, but there's a lot of stuff like that. But I think in terms of big things, uh, one would be, um, I recently went to Peru and did an ayahuasca retreat for like three days with Daniel. And that was a whole different thing like mind blowing lessons. Um, And then before that, uh, we learned how to skydive like for a weekend, like maybe a couple years ago. But actually, I sort of realized that um, doing something that I've never done before is okay, I'll explain this contextually. I was asking a friend about life purpose. And he said, why don't you draw a line across a blank page and write down all your memories? And then you dot along, so low memories are a dot towards bottom, high memories are a great memory, like dots on top. And when I was just on all my best memories, they're all like transformational moments. They weren't just, it wasn't like hanging out on the beach in Cancun. It was like that time when we went to the, you know, when we went to Peru and almost died doing ayahuasca, or like when we were jumping out of planes and it was really freaking hard and exhausting and way more than I signed up for. Like I didn't realize what I was signing up for, getting society certified and it was hard, like mentally and physically difficult. Um, and so all these things, I don't know, like, it just made me realize that, um, I really like these edge moments. Like I like edge experiences better than non edge experiences. And so I'm in the process of like redesigning all of our vacations to be sort of edge experiences. So it's like, should we do an eight day silent retreat yet next? But, um, but I think that's really important. Like being really uncomfortable. Cause it's, it's like the, the growth and learning comes when you're doing something that you haven't done before. It comes when you're doing something that's extremely uncomfortable. And the other thing I'm trying to train my brain to do is to love the moments of extreme conflict and difficulty in the startup world. Because, I mean, so much of it, when someone tries to sue you, when you have a business relationship gone bad, like the heartbreak that comes with all that kind of stuff, you feel like, ah, oh, this sucks. But if you can retrain your mind to think, this is awesome, and I'm going to look back on it in five years, and it's going to be a giant learning growth moment for me. Um, I, I mean, I haven't gotten there where I can trick my mind into doing that, but that's where hopefully we'll get.
2: Love it. So how do you know when you're in a peak state of mind?
0: Oh, I can just feel it. Um, I can feel it. I can just feel it. So for me, it's when I have like epiphanies and ideational breakthroughs. And, uh, and I was trying to figure out how to force it to happen more reliably. And actually I figured out a way recently how to do it. And it's, um, It's like very, it's, it's, I sit and meditate about stuff. And this has never failed me. Like, I just turn on my calm app and I put on the breathing section and it's free. So, the breathing section is like, it'll just do the whole chiming sound. And I'll just sit there and be like, hmm, how do we solve this problem? And then I'll have all these epiphanies. Like, it's crazy and it's super reliable. Um, I don't know what it is. It's it's just the craziest thing. So that for me is partially like flow state. I do that a lot now because um, I've realized, like I used to do this thing. So part of, for me, flow comes from like writing, thinking, articulating, communicating. So I have flow that happens in conversation a lot. And that's when, um, like the the most interesting conversations to me are when you're co-creating with someone. So it's actually new content being created versus regurgitating old content. So I like flow conversations where there's a ton of co-creation happening and ideation. Um, I also love conversations of deep healing. I still do, where um you facilitate someone's like breakthroughs and growth on a personal and healing level. And that brings me to a flow state too. And then they feel like most of flow state, flow state to me, the prior the primary part of it is problem solving, like giant problem solving, business building, like world changing stuff, and just sitting there thinking about it. But sometimes it can be also just thinking about, like, it could be anything. It could be a personal relationship that's broken in my life that I want to figure out what to do about. Like, I can just sit there and get into a flow street in my mind and think about like, what would a solution look like? And somehow it just comes. Theory. Very, it's very strange. Yeah. yeah cool.
2: Well. We- You know i've learned a lot from today's conversation and there's a lot of great insights and things that people can i'm sure that have got the creative juices flowing so how can people learn more about what you do and what is the best way for you uh, for people to connect with you
0: okay so if you want if you're inspired to become a mentor on veterati just go to veterati.com and that's v-e-t-e-r-a-t-i.com and sign up and it takes just like a couple seconds Uh, And if you want to connect with me, um, find me on LinkedIn. That's the, that's, you know, I met my co-founder there, my husband now. It's like LinkedIn (laughs) is the place to be uh, for connecting. So just look up Diana Rao, uh, Veterati, or just Diana Rao. I'll probably come up.
2: Diana, it's been an absolute pleasure speaking with you today. I have thoroughly loved this conversation and watching you sort of think through the process of some of the questions and you know, the, the real passion come out when you talk about the things that are, are, are really deep inside of you and the big whys, you know, the veterati, when you speak about that, you come alive and the, and the passion comes out. And to see you challenging yourself every day with tiny new habits and how you can perform a little bit better the next day, how you are structuring your life so that you have all aspects of it. It's not just around scheduling work, you're now scheduling family, you're scheduling your recovery time. You're scheduling that real deep thinking and how can I work on the business or even further afield than that? How can I create a greater change for the world? It's very inspiring. It's, um, it, it brings out a bit of passion in myself as well. Okay, what else am I gonna do today that brings something else to life? So thank you very much for sharing your wonderful story. There's, um, as I said, some great take homes here and I wish you well on your future journey.
0: Thank you so much Craig. It was such a pleasure being here. Thanks so much.
2: This week's active CEO wellness tip is child's play. Sit back and enjoy the feeling of just playing rather than just being so focused and diligent on specific tasks. Try things, play things, do things a little bit out of the norm, test it and be a little bit creative. Be like a child, play, have fun, and allow your creative juices to flow. We get so structured in life, it's that ability to step outside of that structured mold and just allow yourself some freedom to test, be creative, innovative, and try different things. Think like a kid, you know, don't be afraid of making a mistake, don't be afraid of someone else judging you. Put yourself in a position where you're just playing, pulling things together and seeing how they might work. Take things apart and try and put it back together again. Have fun playing like a child. Thank you for listening to an energizing conversation with Diana Rao, where we dive deep into board of mentors on episode 56 of the Active CEO podcast. CEOs and leaders get to a point where they feel comfortable that their business or team is running smoothly, the people are performing well, and growth is on a good trajectory. What they don't realize is that this is quite often the point where the business or team is at their most vulnerable. The key to sustaining a healthy business or team is to commence a new transformation while the business or team is still on its rise or before it goes too far into decline. It comes from the sigmoid curve concept where a growth curve will initially decline when experimenting and learning then rises in a period of growth and prosperity before it then starts to decline unless a new transformation intervention is initiated. Are you at a starting? Are you at a point where everything is comfortable and you're feeling relaxed as a CEO leader? If so, then it is time to commence the conversation before complacency kicks in and the decline starts to go down towards a final end. To learn more, please do not hesitate to contact us about breaking the CEO code and breaking the coach code by going to the www.nrg2perform.com website. This is the active CEO podcast with ordinary don't belong.
1: Join the active CEO movement by visiting www.nrgtoperform.com. That's nrgnumber2perform.com. Share this podcast on LinkedIn and be sure to tag in NRG to perform. Leave a review on iTunes. Drop us a line with your feedback and questions and connect with us on the NRG to perform Facebook and Instagram pages. Be sure to check out the next Active CEO podcast where the ordinary don't belong.